Hey everyone, Shannon here with the second half of our bonus episode on the USCCB letter on racism, Open Wide Our Hearts, which was published in 2018. This week we're covering the second half of the letter, which moves from examining the problem of racism in our country and in the U.S. church into discussing how we can begin to change our culture and combat the racism we find around us. So without further ado, let's talk about the third section, Love Goodness. While the bishops note that most people don't consider themselves racist, and probably aren't, we can absorb racist attitudes or hold implicit biases based in white supremacy. We can do and say racist things unconsciously without being a racist person. I'll give you an example from my own life. One time I was a substitute teacher at a local Catholic high school, and being African American, I was very used to seeing families that had named their children something unique. And I remember getting to one kid's name on the list, and I looked at it for a second, and then I pronounced it how I thought it should be pronounced. And the kid's face lit up. He said, that's the first time a substitute has ever gotten my name right. And I was so excited because I understood how that can feel. And then I said, oh, no worries. I'm used to seeing weird names. And I could see his face fall. I meant to say unique. What I said was weird. And unintentionally, I reinforced the value that Anglo names, names not like his, were better, even though I simply meant that it was out of the ordinary. And I had to immediately say, I'm so sorry, I did not mean to say that your name was weird. It is not weird, it's unique, and it's beautiful. And, you know, that helped, but I couldn't help but think about the way that I had just committed basically an act based in white supremacy simply because I wasn't paying attention to my language. This is also an example of internalized racism, when a person of color, like myself, unconsciously views themselves or other people of color through the lens of racism or white supremacy. I was looking at the world and my own culture through a lens of whether it was weird or not based on whether it was Anglo enough. Another example of this is the skin whitening creams that you can find in Africa, India, Asia, and all over the world, that people of color use skin whitening creams to make themselves lighter and therefore more beautiful by the standards of their country. And that simply has to do with the culture that's been absorbed from being colonized. There's no reason in God's eyes that any of us are less beautiful because our skin is darker or lighter, but that's the standard of beauty that people are are held to. So it's easy to see why, when we're looking at race, the bishops remind us we need to ask which fruits are present in our hearts around race, because this helps us determine if the attitudes are truly of God or if they're of the world. Are they the fruits of the Spirit, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, or are they something else? Ultimately, they remind us separating groups is a failure to love. The golden rule isn't enough when it simply allows us to live and let live. We must see ourselves as our brother or sister's keeper, tasked with ensuring their well-being and flourishing, rather than simply treating them as we wish to be treated and not addressing the deeper structural issues of racism. At the end of the day, we as Christians know this love can only be found in Jesus, and most especially in his cross. 
We can say with certainty that God so deplores sin and division that Christ gave up his own life to end our division from God and from each other. Christian love goes out to seek the other in order to make them into a brother or sister. It is not content with keeping the status quo. It motivates us to work for justice and equity for each person. This love of God, this agape love, the bishops say, compels each of us to resist racism courageously. It allows us not only to bring about justice, but also to celebrate our diversity as a gift and to enrich our understanding of human life through the gifts we find in every human culture. They also give us the examples of Venerable Augustus Tolton, one of our favorites on the podcast, and St. Catherine Drexel as people whose lives uphold this love for others from every background. We then move into the section called Walk Humbly with Your God, which the bishops define in regards to racism as rebuilding our relationships, healing our communities, and working to shape policies and institutions to the good of all as missionary disciples. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with this language, this term missionary disciples, being a missionary disciple means that we are disciples who follow Christ, who live out his teachings, but also that we are disciples who are sent out on mission, sent to share the good news of Jesus with everyone that we meet. And being missionary disciples means, too, that we show the love of God in our actions before and in addition to preaching about it. It means that we center our lives in the community, and the bishops say it means that we work to build up and renew that community. So we must work to convert hearts just as much as we work to create just systems and structures. Charity without justice is dead, but so too is justice without charity. You can't have one without the other. And we have to remember as Christians that only God can transform hearts in this way. So the task of missionary disciple in a lived witness to the love of God in our own lives is especially important in anti-racism work. People have to see how our lives have been changed. And at the heart of this is the sharing of our stories. Sharing stories about our God moments, stories of our encounters with others, Stories of how we've changed our mind about important things, especially things like culture and race. And most importantly, as you know, stories that center the experience of Black and Indigenous people of color. The bishops also note that they are going to commit to a series of actions for direct and deliberate change, which we'll look at individually. The bishops ask us to acknowledge our sin both as individuals as well as as a community. And then they make a huge statement. They acknowledge not only that the church has contributed to racism in the past and in the present as an institution, but they also apologize for it. And this is really important for all of us to call us to conversion about our attitudes and the way we as Christians, as members of the Catholic Church, have contributed to racism in our church. Second, the bishops ask us all to be open to encounter. They point out that while no one has all the answers to end racism, our call to missionary discipleship requires a willingness to confront hardship and sin. As we know, it is not easy. We can only do it because we have confidence in the love of Jesus for us and of our love for Jesus Christ. It is our encounter with the person of Jesus of Nazareth in his whole person, in his humanity, his divinity, in all that he is, which changes our lives and from which we draw our strength. 
We have to work to encounter others outside of our normal circles, even those who may be hardened by prejudice and racism, because that's what Christ would do. The church isn't a gathering of like-minded people who agree on every issue. It's the living, breathing body of Christ to which every baptized person has been summoned by God's own self. It's also important to note that it's not the job of someone from another group or another culture to educate me or to seek me out an encounter. It's my job to educate myself and to be open to different ways of thinking and different ways of being in the world. We learn from each other different ways of knowing as well as different ways of encountering God. One example I'll give from my own life is from the time when I worked as an interfaith minister. During that time, I worked with some of our Muslim students, making sure that their spiritual needs were met, as well as making sure they had the opportunity to worship and pray together. And I remember one time talking to one of the students who was explaining the Muslim view of fasting. Now, for all those of us who are Christian, we often associate fasting with our own personal penance, our own personal way of drawing closer to God, of saying we're sorry, of becoming a better person, of letting go of the things that tie us to the world. And those are really good reasons to fast. But in the Muslim view, fasting, especially times during Ramadan, was as a reminder that when we are lucky enough to have food every day, there are people who go without. There are people for whom hunger is an everyday occurrence and that they're called to solidarity and care for those people. It's also a reminder that everything is a gift from God, even the food that we eat, and to be grateful and humble and thankful for those things. And I remember hearing about this And certainly that strain is in our own Christian tradition, but because of the way that our particular way of viewing the world has developed over the centuries, we have lost some of that. And thankfully, through listening to this student who I didn't necessarily share culture or faith with, I was able to learn something new, not only about myself and about this student, but ultimately about the mystery of who God is and how God works in our lives. The third thing the bishops ask us is to resolve to work for justice. Here they talk about the structural work the church has to do and give their initiatives for making institutional change. They also suggest broad outlines for national policies to address the effects of racism and uphold a consistent life ethic. Their suggestions for local policy changes are specifically addressed to parishes and diocesan level supports. They also declare participation in racist and white supremacist groups to be sinful. The fourth thing they encourage us to do is to educate ourselves. They encourage everyone to learn about different cultures and the history of race in America, both individually and as institutions. Priests, catechists, pastoral leaders are all reminded to clearly present the church's teaching on racism, especially to the young. Educational institutions and seminaries are asked to create curricula for anti-racism education. This is especially important because if we look at numbers, out of over 37,000 active priests in the U.S., only 250 are African American. In addition, while Hispanics make up 40% of the Catholic population, they only make up 3% of active priests. So working on anti-racism education, working on promoting diversity, working on encouraging vocations among men and women of color is extremely important, if only to have our clergy reflect the makeup of our church. 
Finally, the bishops remind us that confronting racism and doing anti-racism education also has to happen in our own families, especially with our children. The fifth thing the bishops ask is to work for an end to racism in our churches. They ask those in parish leadership to educate themselves, to develop programs, and implement policies which will combat racism. They also give suggestions for how to embrace and increase diversity in the church nationwide, including promoting vocations and preaching against racism. As someone who works in the church, I have to ask myself constantly, is this something I do? Is this something that I commit to myself as well? And how have I helped to implement any changes in my own parish and in the larger church? The sixth thing the bishops ask is to work for changing structures. I'm going to quote directly from the document here because I think this line is beautiful. They say, racism can only end if we contend with the policies and institutional barriers that perpetuate and preserve the inequality, economic and social, that we see all around us. With renewed vigor, we call on everyone, especially all Christians, to join others in advocating for and promoting policies at all levels that will combat racism and its effects in our civil and social institutions. They then go on to encourage ecumenical, that is, inter-Christian, and inter-religious cooperation in efforts to fight against racism. The success of this effort, the bishops note, will very much depend on this kind of collaboration. The seventh thing they remind us to do is to pray and work for the conversion of all, especially by encouraging those prejudiced by racism to abandon these sinful thoughts and ways. I think it's really important, and I know I need to be reminded that God can do anything. God can transform even the hardest of hearts if we are willing to share God's love with others. Part of evangelization is calling others to conversion, and more importantly, it's being willing to undergo continual conversion ourselves. If we're not willing to confront the things that are hard, the people who are hard to love, then we're really not evangelizing as Jesus Christ would ask us to. The eighth thing that the bishops ask is to continue to be committed to life. As we discussed in our last episode, people of color are disproportionately affected by attacks on life from womb to tomb, and the bishops outline many of those same points I made in this part of the document. And then they go on to say what might be the most important line in this entire document. As bishops, I quote, we unequivocally state that racism is a life issue. Racism is an attack on the human dignity of each person. It is an attack on life. And if we are truly pro-life from womb to tomb, then we will care about whether or not people who are in the womb, out of the womb, approaching the end of their life are being treated fairly, equitably, and like the person made in the image and likeness of God that they are. And finally, the bishops encourage us to move forward. They remind us that we need to care deeply about ending racism as Catholics because our ultimate vocation, no matter our background, is sharing in the divine life of the Trinity. Anything that separates humans from each other draws us away from sharing in that divine communion. Christ, they say, showed us that the very life of God is love, and love requires something of each of us. And while this document confronts some very hard truths, we know as Christian people, united as the body of Christ, that we can find unity and hope, and we have unity and hope 
in Christ Jesus. At the end of the day, God has won the victory over sin and death. And even though sin is with us, and even though evil is still out in the world, we know what the end of the story is. And so we keep working and striving, and we keep trying every day, trying to be a little bit better, trying to be a little bit more like Jesus, and leaning on the Lord who loves us and gave up his life for us. So our final thought for this discussion of Open Wide Our Hearts is what are the next steps for you? How will you bring this message into your daily life? How will you help the world be a little less racist and a little more like the kingdom of God? Thank you so much for joining us in this bonus episode. And thank you so, so much for supporting our podcast through Patreon. We're planning some great new content just for Patreon subscribers in August, and we're super excited to send that your way. So keep on fighting the good fight, keep on keeping on, and God bless you. We'll see you soon. Bye.